Well, it was about the year 60 A.D., and the Apostle Paul was imprisoned in Rome, and he was awaiting either execution or release. And while he was there, he wrote this letter to a church in Philippi, the Philippians. And most of the people in that church, they probably knew Paul personally because he was the very first one that God used to bring the gospel to their city, which you can read about in Acts chapter 16. And Paul writes this letter for a couple of reasons. First, he writes to reassure them that he's okay. They were understandably worried about him. And so this letter, especially the first 26 verses of the letter, they served as a report on his own condition as well as the condition of his ministry. And both, by the way, were doing very well. Paul was not scared of dying, and the gospel was actually thriving while he was in prison, even making its way all the way into the household of the Roman emperor. So Paul's doing fine. The gospel was doing fine. But second, Paul also writes, not just to reassure the Philippians that he and the ministry are okay, he writes to exhort the Philippians, which means that he urged them to do some things. If you're being exhorted, you're being urged to do some things. And he did that with the Philippians. He did it beginning in chapter 1, verse 27, all the way through chapter 2, verse 18. And he said things to the Philippians, and these, of course, are things that we need to hear as well. He said things like, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Chapter 1, verse 27. And do nothing from selfish ambition. Chapter 2, verse 3. And do all things without grumbling or questioning. Chapter 2, verse 14. And hold fast to the word of life. Chapter 2, verse 16. And then finally, in chapter 2, verse 18, be glad and rejoice. And then beginning in chapter 2, verse 19, Paul begins to give examples of people who are already following these commands. People who are practicing what they preach. Godly men for us to imitate. People like Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus. And he also, we'll see today, gives some examples of men not to imitate. Here are people, Paul says, that you should imitate. And here we'll see today, there are also people you should not imitate. And then he's going to bring this whole section of examples to a close in verse 17 of chapter 3, where he will say, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Those enemies of the cross of Christ 
who bring Paul to tears. They show up in our text today. We make it a point not to imitate them. So this morning, Lord willing, we will learn who they are and what they say, and more importantly, who we are as Christians and what we say as Christians. But before I preach this sermon, we should pray together. Will you please bow your heads with me? Our Father in heaven, help us to interpret and apply your word. Help us to understand your word and then to change. We ask that through the preaching of your holy word, you would reach our hearts and our minds and our wills. In Jesus' name, amen. Please open your Bibles, if you haven't already, to Philippians chapter 3. If you are using one of our church Bibles, you'll find that on page 637. Being joyful is not a suggestion to the Christian. Being joyful is a a command to the Christian. Christians are required, the Bible says, to be joyful. And so, no surprise, this letter that Paul writes is after joy. It's after joy in Paul. It's going after joy in the Philippians. It is going after joy in you. In fact, this entire book, this entire Bible is after your joy. If you read it, God's word, if you read God's word, if you understand God's word, if you believe God's word, then indomitable joy is inevitable. You cannot read God's word, understand God's word, and then believe God's word without having a bedrock joy that is indomitable. Nothing can sway it. Nothing ultimately can conquer it. Nothing can kill it. This whole letter, we've been saying, is after joy. In chapter 1, verse 18, Paul said, from prison, mind you, I rejoice. He says that over and over again. And he's in prison saying, I rejoice. In 1, verse 25, he told the Philippians that the goal of his ministry was their progress and, do you remember, joy in the faith. Toward the end, in 4, verse 4, Paul will say, as a command, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. This is how the Bible talks about joy. It doesn't say, hey, if you're happy, express it. It says, be happy. All the time. Doesn't care what you're going through, ultimately, what's going on around you, within or without. The Bible says over and over again, be joyful. So Paul says, be joyful always. And then he says it again, I will rejoice. And now listen to the very beginning of our text today. Look at verse 1, chapter 3. We see it again. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. That means the words that follow, the words that we're going to read today are for joy. 
read this, what we're looking at today, understand this, believe this, and indomitable joy is inevitable. Let's finish reading verse 1, which sets up the rest of our text. Paul says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. So apparently Paul had said these, look at those words. He had said these same things before, probably in person, but he feels the need to say them again. And he says two things regarding what he is about to say again. Look with me. He says two things about what he's going to say again. Now, first, he says it is no trouble to him. What he's about to say again, he's already said before, it is no trouble to him. In other words, it is a pleasure to say some things over and over again. It is a pleasure for Paul to say some things over and over again. Some things are worth repeating. Some things are worth repeating. And Paul does this. He gladly repeats himself throughout his letters. If you've studied Paul and you've read his letters and you've read them over and over again, you'll see that Paul gladly repeats himself over and over again throughout his letters, often communicating the same truth, but saying it in many different ways. So it's no trouble to him, he says, to repeat myself here. The second thing Paul says is, look at the end, it is safe for you at the end of verse one. It is safe for you. In other words, this is for your good. It's for your good that I repeat myself here. One of the ways Paul protects the Philippians and protects their joy is through the repeating of certain truths over and over again. So here are two things Paul repeats in his letters. The gospel and Christianity. Probably more than Paul repeats anything, Paul repeats the gospel and Christianity. He answers two questions throughout his letters over and over again, saying the same thing using different words. What is the gospel? That's the first question that Paul is always getting to the answer of. And secondly, what is a Christian? Over and over again, this is what the gospel is. Let me say it in different ways. Over and over again, this is what a Christian is. Let me say it in many different ways. So this morning, we're looking at Paul's answer to what is a Christian. Next week, we'll see the gospel in this same text. But this morning... We're going to see Paul's answer to what is a Christian, and he will give three answers. Now, don't assume if you're here this morning, if you're here this morning, and you all are, <laughs> if you're here, <laughs> don't assume you know the answer. This is why Paul repeats the answer to this question over and over again in his letters, because people assume they know the answer. Don't assume that you know the answer to what is a Christian. Come to the Bible, no matter how long you've been a professing Christian, and hear what Paul has to say. 
Christians, listen, Christians who do not feel the need to revisit these fundamental basic truths and examine themselves are not, to use Paul's words, safe. And for so long, for so long in my young Christian life, I felt it totally unnecessary to go over these fundamental basic truths. And it was no surprise that later I looked back and wondered if I was even a Christian. Because I assumed I knew the answer to that question. And I didn't. So don't hearing this over and over again somehow be inoculated to the truth of it and not hear it anymore. Those Christians who do not feel the need to revisit these fundamental basic truths and examine themselves are not safe. So please don't be that Christian this morning. I know what a Christian is. Thank you very much. I know what the gospel is. Thank you very much. Been there. Bought the t-shirt, the stickers on my car. I know this. Thank you. I'm the one that tells others what this is. Move along. Let's see if some people get saved, but I'm good. Thank you. Don't be that Christian. Be humble when you come to God's word and hear what Paul has to say. So let's continue. Let's read Paul's words. Here's the first thing Paul says following his command to rejoice in the Lord. Verse 2, look out for the dogs. Rejoice in the Lord. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Look out. Look out. Look out. Three times he says it. Look out. The Greek word means beware. Beware. Look out for. Be on the lookout for. Be vigilant. It's like you are in a tower and you are on the lookout for an approaching enemy. That's the kind of language that Paul uses. Look out. Look out. Look out. Remember what Paul says in chapter 3, verse 17 and 18. Let me read it again. This is what he says at the end of all these exhortations. Brothers, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. So you heard it in verse 17. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Christians keep their eyes on other godly Christians. Christians keep their eyes on other godly Christians. Christians imitate other godly Christians. But Christians also look out for bad examples. They don't just make assumptions. They look out for, Paul says it three times, bad examples. And Paul gives these bad examples three names. Dogs, evildoers, and mutilators 
of the flesh. Strong language. Strong language. Paul did not sugarcoat. If Paul were asked about these men and their teaching, Paul wouldn't say, no comment. If Paul were asked about these men, and by the way, he calls them out by names in some of his letters. If Paul were asked about these men, he wouldn't say something like, you know, we've agreed to disagree. When Paul would be asked about certain individuals, he would say he is a dog. That's strong language that gets your attention. That makes you think twice about that person. So-and-so is a dog. So-and-so. Who'd you say? He's an evildoer. What about this one who's a, a teacher in our church? He's a mutilator of the flesh. The dog. Look out for him. Watch out. Beware. Be on the lookout. Okay, let me give you some background so that you understand what Paul is saying here. First of all, these dogs, as Paul calls them, they're false teachers. So these are people who believe certain things, but they not only believe certain things, they're they're saying these certain things. They're spreading these certain things. They're teaching these certain things. They were often called Judaizers. They called themselves. One of the names that they called themselves was the circumcision. Probably didn't put that name to a vote. They were called the circumcision party, which did not refer to an event, thank goodness, but a group of people with shared ideas like the Republican Party. Or the Democratic Party. Peter dealt with them in Acts 11, 2 and 3. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. James, we're told in Galatians 5, 12, was afraid of them and altered his behavior based on his fear of them. And Paul often, if you read his letters, Paul often spoke out against these guys. Like in Galatians 5, 6, when he said, for in Christ, Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. But only faith working through love. So these men were a major problem. They're all over the New Testament. They were a major problem in the first century church. And here is the main idea or belief that united these men. So here it is. These Men were Jews who insisted that true Christians must follow the Mosaic law, including circumcision, in addition to placing faith in Jesus Christ. Let me say that one more time. They were Jews, this group that Paul is telling the Philippians to look out for. They were Jews who insisted that the real Christians, the true Christians, followed the Mosaic law, including circumcision, and that would need to be in addition to faith in Christ. So they would say and agree, you need to place your faith in Christ. Good, you've placed your faith in Christ, but now 
will tell you how to be real Christians. The true Christians, the real Christians, the legit Christians, here's what they do. They subscribe fully to the Old Testament Mosaic Law, beginning with circumcision. Now, here's the problem with that teaching. It's not true. It's not true. Here's what commentator D.A. Carson says. Paul insists that they are misreading the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament. The Old Covenant scriptures do not establish eternal structures of religious observance. Rather, they anticipate Christ's coming. They look forward to His coming. They announce His coming. But it is His coming that is the ultimate hope. So if you read through the Old Testament, and many of you have, in the Old Testament, God's people had many, many rules and regulations. And these dogs in the first century church taught that all of them were still binding. But they're not. That's Paul's message. But they're not. So in the Old Testament, we had the temple, the tabernacle first, and then the temple. And that is where God's people had to go to meet with God. But no more temple after Jesus. No more temple. The temple pointed to Jesus, who is the supreme meeting place between man and God. You read about sacrifices all over the Old Testament, but no more sacrifices. The sacrifices pointed to Jesus, the supreme sacrifice on behalf of the sin of God's people. And no more circumcision, which, among other things, symbolized a commitment to follow God's law. But as Christians, our hearts have been, the Bible says, circumcised, meaning we have been cut to the heart and changed by God to love Him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Moses predicted this day in Deuteronomy 36 when he said, And the Lord your God, in the future, now, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Paul preached against this in Romans 8, 28 and 29. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor, Paul says, is circumcision outward and physical. That's not the main issue, he says. But a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. So look back at the text with me. With that understanding, see if you can hear what Paul does in verses 2 and 3. He calls the false teachers, right? Those who claim to be the real Christians. He calls them three names. And then he gives Three marks of a real Christian. Verse two, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh for we are the circumcision. You hear what he's saying? They're not the circumcision. That's not real Christianity. We 
are the circumcision who, and then here are the three marks, worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So let's look at these three marks. Let's look at each of these marks of a true Christian individually. But first, let me say this. This is the right way to handle false teachers. Paul sets a good example. This is the right way to handle false teachers. If a professing Christian, think about this with me, if a professing Christian clearly and publicly teaches doctrine that contradicts the gospel of Jesus Christ, they should meet strong verbal opposition. I'm not just saying people you disagree with. But if a professing Christian clearly and publicly teaches doctrine that contradicts the gospel of Jesus Christ, they should meet strong verbal opposition. And that's not being mean. That is not mean. It is loving people who would otherwise be persuaded by them and led into destruction. It's a loving thing to do. There are still, this was not a first century problem, we'll see as we go on, there are still dogs among us. There are still those who offer up false teaching that contradicts the gospel of Jesus Christ. Calling them out is not popular, it is not easy, but it's certainly not popular, but it is necessary. Some churches and most Christian bookstores are terrible at this. Terrible at this. Where there is no gatekeeper. No gatekeeper. Who is actually evaluating what is being said in light of God's word. But this is so important. Just because someone says, I'm a Christian, that doesn't make you a Christian. Just because someone makes music and says it's Christian music doesn't make it Christian music. Just because someone writes a book and says, this is a Christian book, doesn't make it a Christian book. Just because someone said, this is true, doesn't make it true. Christians who believe in the sufficiency of God's word, and all Christians say they do, measure everything against the word of God. And if it doesn't square up with the word of God, then Christians need to say that is not true and reject it. And you can do that in a way that is kind and gracious and loving, but it needs to be done. Okay, Paul, what is a true Christian then? What is a true Christian? He gives three marks. Number one, they worship by the Spirit of God. Number two, they glory in Christ Jesus. And number three, they put no confidence in the flesh. Paul spends the most time on number three. We'll do the same. Let's move quickly through the first two and then emphasize the third. Number one, Paul is saying a true Christian worships by the Spirit of God. If you're a Christian here today, 
the Spirit of God dwells within you. This is one of those truths that is true and we might think about it so often or read about it or say it so often that we we forget how significant that is. Let me say it again. If you are a Christian, the Spirit of God dwells within you. That means, among many other things, that you do not have to go to a special place to meet with God. You don't have to go to a special place to meet with God. You don't have to come here to meet with God. You are meeting with God right now. He could not be closer, Christian. God could not be closer to you during the week when you're away from here than he is to you here this morning. Because why? If you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit of God dwells within you. Remember this Sunday morning tradition of ours, and this is very important what we do here on Sundays and Christians have been doing for 2000 years. But this Sunday morning tradition of ours, it's not important because this is when we can meet with God. That's that's not what is most significant about this morning, but because this is when we can meet with each other and with each other come before God. That's what makes today significant. That's what makes Sunday mornings for 2000 years significant and in obedience to God that we should come together at least once a week. And meet together and together meet before God. But don't think that means that you don't meet with God throughout the week. Or that you're not close to God throughout the week. You remember in John chapter 4, Jesus had a conversation with a woman at a well. It was about this very topic. She figures out very quickly who Jesus is and that he's someone special. And so she starts asking him Questions that you would ask like a prophet in that day. And one of the questions she asks is, quote, where are we supposed to worship? Because that was a controversy even in her day. In Jerusalem, here on this mountain, and here was his answer. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. And that has been realized. And that is our experience as God's people. We do not have to go to a special place to meet with God. We meet with God now. As his Holy Spirit dwells in us. So a true Christian worships by the Spirit of God. Number two, Paul says, a true Christian glories in Christ Jesus. And we could add a word to the end to understand what Paul is saying. A true Christian glories in Christ Jesus alone. That's his point. Jesus is everything to a Christian. Think about how Paul has made that clear already in this letter. Jesus is everything to a Christian. The way we sometimes have said it here is that he is our greatest treasure. Think about it. Think about the songs we sing. 
The songs we sang this morning, the songs we sing on other mornings, we don't sing things like, Jesus paid most of it, I owe him a lot. I mean, aside from the fact that it would be a terrible song, we don't sing, Jesus paid most of it, oh gee, I owe him a lot. What are we saying? Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Jesus paid it all. What's the unsaid word there? Therefore, therefore, all, everything I owe to him. We glory in Jesus Christ alone. Psalm 73, 25 and 26, written even before the coming of Christ. The psalmist said, who am I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Of course, there were things on earth that he desired besides God, but nothing, the point is, compared to God. Nothing. There's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. A true Christian worships by the Spirit of God. A true Christian glories in Christ Jesus alone. And number three, a true Christian puts no confidence in the flesh. And again, this third mark of a true Christian is what Paul spends the most time on. This is what really contradicted what these false teachers were saying. So let me read verse 3 again, and then right into verses 4 through 6, where he elaborates on putting no confidence in the flesh. It's very important that we understand this mark of a true Christian. What does it mean? So you should be praying, even as we read and study. Paul, what do you mean by no confidence in the the flesh. Verse 3. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So basically, here's what it means to put confidence in the flesh. This is what it means to put confidence in in the flesh. When it comes to your standing before God. To trust in anything other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Is to put your confidence in the flesh. Let me say that one more time. When it comes to your standing before God. That's what we're talking about here. That's what Paul is talking about. When it comes to your Standing before God. Am, am I good with God? Am, am I okay with God? Am I at peace with God? Am I reconciled to God? Is He, is he good with me? Is He okay with me? Is He at peace with me? Is, is He reconciled to me? When it comes to your standing before God, to trust in anything 
anything other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you do that, when you do that, you're putting confidence in your flesh. To be a Christian is to put confidence in Christ alone. To be a Christian is to trust in Christ alone. To be a Christian is to rely on Christ alone. To be a Christian is to put your faith in Christ alone. Whether we're talking about your eternal standing before God or your daily standing before God, the basis of it is not what you have done or not done. It is what Christ has done. So important. Sinclair Ferguson and his book on Philippians says that upbringing, natural qualities and gifts, possessions, traditions, and education that makes us feel superior to others, all these are irrelevant. More, when we trust in them, they pull us down into sin and failure. They cannot earn us favor with God. We cannot afford to rely on them. Christ and Christ alone is our security. Now, here's what Paul is saying in verses four through six. Here's the point that Paul is saying in verses four through six, where he gives that list, which in many circles in that day would have been a sweet resume. Those were those were great achievements. Those were that was a great position in life. Those were unmatched accolades. And Paul lists them. And what he's saying is that if anyone had reason to put confidence in the flesh, it was it was me. It was Paul. He lists four inherited privileges and then three achievements And there was a day when all of this was the source of Paul's confidence before God and before others. Look at these with me. He was circumcised on the eighth day, which means that Paul was born into a family that strictly observed the Old Testament laws. He was of the people of Israel. In other words, he was a biological descendant of Abraham, not a Gentile convert. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. Which means that unlike many Jews, for Paul's family, the record had not been lost. And he could tell you exactly what tribe he belonged to. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Which probably means he grew up speaking Hebrew. And we know he ended up being trained by Gamaliel, one of the great Jewish rabbis of the day. He was a superstar. Those were not things that Paul had any control over though, right? Those were just things that... Privileges that came his way. Those were privileges that he inherited. But then he lists his achievements. As to the law, a Pharisee. We know this. Paul was a Pharisee, which was a sect within Judaism. And they were more committed than any other group of Jews to following the ceremonial law of God. In fact, they had other rules and other regulations to keep them from breaking the real rules and regulations. And Paul was one of them. He was a Pharisee. As to zeal, he said, a persecutor of the church. Paul risked his life to exterminate what he considered to be false religion. He was passionate about it. And finally, Paul said, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. In other words, outwardly, Paul obeyed 
all the rules. And all of that, Paul is saying, that there was a day when that was the source of Paul's confidence. But not anymore. That's what he's saying. But not anymore. And he goes on to say about how he feels about all those achievements now. Look at verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Paul is saying that that when he came to know Christ, all of his calculations changed. Everything that he calculated as valuable was no longer valuable. Everything that he calculated as unimportant was now more important than anything. All that Paul was and did before Christ, he calls garbage. The word he uses literally means excrement. That's how he sees it. Everything I was, everything I was about, everything I did, everything I was proud of, everything that I trusted in, Everything that they gave me a name, garbage. His education, his heritage, his pedigree, his passion, his achievements, his accomplishments. In, in that moment, look at verse 8. In that moment, he says, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. In that moment when Paul came to know, Jesus Christ as his Lord, he threw everything else away. Everything else. Rubbish, he says. They held no value any longer. There is nothing more valuable than knowing Christ. Some of you know this, and you know this by experience, that there is nothing more valuable than knowing Christ. And you can talk to other Christians about how there is nothing more valuable than knowing Christ. And you get frustrated when you talk to people who don't know Christ. And you wonder, how can they not see it? Christ is everything to you. If you didn't have Christ, nothing that you have would matter. And you live with people and work with people and spend time with people and love people. And Christ has zero value in their life. There's nothing more valuable than knowing Christ. And of course, we mean knowing Christ, not knowing about Christ. Christ. Paul is talking about knowing Jesus personally. Nothing is more 
valuable. Not money, not possessions, not achievements, not reputation, not social status, not followers, not your family, not your job. Nothing is more valuable. Think of it this way. When Paul became a true Christian, everything that he had in the credit column, he transferred to the debit column. Everything. Everything that was there that that he was proud of, everything that he put confidence in, everything that gave him ballast in his life, he transferred all of that from the credit column over to the debit column. And there was only one thing left in the credit column, and it was Jesus Christ. That was it. It was like a day where he'd been keeping his checkbook and he'd been recording all of the debits and all of the credits and all of the deposits and all of the withdrawals. And on that day, he learned that all of those deposits that he had been making were actually withdrawals. You can imagine the anxiety that you would feel in that moment. Not only did those deposits not count for you, they counted against you. On that day when he came to know Christ and the surpassing joy of knowing Christ, everything that was in that credit column, it transferred. And the only thing left was Jesus. On one side is everything the world has to offer, and on the other side is Christ alone. And that is no contest to the Christian. This is why he said in Philippians 1.21, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Paul goes on to explain why, why he calculates this way, why he continually counts all things as loss, but his personal relationship with Christ. Verse 8 and 9, In order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. There it is again. Because I think this way, I count this way, I calculate this way, I think about Christ this way, and I think about everything else this way in order to gain Christ. I want more of Christ. My only hope, my only desire, truly my only hope, my only desire at the end of the day, Paul is saying, is that I may be found in him. That I may be found in Christ. And friends, what does Paul tell us? What happens when you are found in Christ? What does Paul say? What happens when Paul is found in in Jesus, What happens when you and I are found in Jesus? What happens when we place our faith in Christ? Not self-righteousness, that's for sure. And I can testify to that and you can testify to that. Nothing good in me, nothing in me that makes me better than you. Nothing in me, in Paul's words, nothing in my flesh to put confidence in. No, nothing. No righteousness of my 
own to boast in. In fact, when I became a Christian and that veil was lifted, I was far less righteous than I thought I was. That's not what we have when we're found in Christ. It's even better. What does Paul say? He says that the righteousness of Christ is credited to your account. And that, friends, is reason for joy. Remember why he's writing. Remember why Paul is so upset with these false teachers. It's not just that they're wrong. It's what their wrong teaching does to a Christian. It's what their wrong teaching does to joy. And so Paul, over and over again, for the safety of those he loves, answers over and over again, this is what the gospel is. This is what a Christian is. It's not that. It's not that. It's not that. It's not that. It's this. A true Christian worships by the Spirit of God. A true Christian glories in Christ alone. A true Christian puts zero confidence in the flesh. In conclusion, I thought it might be helpful to close with a a personal from just me and my own life an illustration. Some of you will relate to, some of you will not relate to because you're not like me. But maybe there will be something that will be helpful for you to make this practical. To put no confidence in the flesh. So let me briefly explain, just very practically, how, how I am tempted to put confidence in the flesh. This is how one of the ways that, that Eric Myers is tempted to put confidence in the flesh. I would say that almost every morning... I am tempted to put confidence in my flesh. Just about every single day. Some of you know this about me. Of course, my wife knows this about me. I'm most clear first thing in the morning. Some of you aren't. We're all different. I'm most clear first thing in the morning. I'm, I'm most able to think and concentrate and thoughtful first thing in the morning. I'm not sharp at night. I'm not, I'm not clear at night. Things are just sort of cloudy for me at night. I, I don't think well at night. But in the morning, I'm pretty sharp and, and thinking clearly and seeing clearly. And so typically for me, in the morning, almost as soon as I wake up, I am flooded with all the good and the bad of the day before and all the good and the bad that I expect in the day to come. And I mean, it's as soon as I wake up and all of these thoughts are starting to fill my head. And most of it is the good stuff I did yesterday and the bad stuff I did yesterday. And I'm, I'm evaluating and even tempted to a sort of morbid introspection and, and thinking about everything that happened the day before, what I did well the day before, what I did poorly the day before. And here's what happens. If I did well the day before, I am immediately tempted to pride. If I did well the day before, whatever well is to Eric, right? I, I got up early and I, I had my devotional time and I read six chapters in the Bible and, and I prayed and then I, I did this and had this meeting and then I spent this much time preparing for the sermon and 
I wasn't impatient all day and, and I, I didn't lose my temper. My, my thoughts were being taken captive. I was setting my mind on the right kinds of things. I was, I was a help to others. I, I served others. And, and I will begin to think through those things. And if I did pretty well the day before, I am tempted to pride. I'm tempted to arrogance. I'm tempted to boast. I'm tempted to feel pretty good about myself. I feel like God must really be loving me now. Well, the opposite is true. If I did poorly the day before, I'm tempted to despair. You can guess what I tend to feel more. Or maybe you can't. It's despair. Because usually there's things or a multitude of things that I did the day before that I wish I'd done differently. Things I thought I wish I hadn't thought. Things I said I wish I hadn't said. Things I did that I I wish I hadn't done. And I did them the day before and the week before that. And, oh God, I can't believe I'm still doing this. And I've been a Christian this long. And and I'm a pastor, and, and how, how could I do this? And, and why am I still in this boat? And, and I'm tempted to despair. I'm tempted to discouragement. Now, do you see that in both cases, I'm putting confidence in my flesh? It's about me. It's about what I've done. It's about my performance. And if I did well, I drive into one ditch. And if I did bad, I drive into another ditch. So, so here is how, here's how Eric tries to deal with that. When I'm doing this well, when I'm doing this well, every day, I must take all of that, all that I did well, all that I didn't do well, and stack it before the cross until I'm no longer proud or discouraged. And it's just about a daily discipline that I have to practice. So if I'm feeling proud, I've got to stack it in front of the cross and I've got to remember the gospel and I've got to read God's word and remember that, Eric, there is n- nothing. Look at the cross. There is nothing that you could possibly do that could earn or deserve favor from God. You see what Jesus has done How presumptuous of you to feel like you're more accepted and loved by God today because you didn't lose your patience for three hours. I have to talk myself out of out of pride and not listen to myself, but preach to myself. More often than not, though, when I'm discouraged and in despair, I can stack those things before the cross and remember that that's why you had to die. That's why you had to die. And you have loved me enough to be punished instead of me and to sacrifice yourself on on my behalf. And so I I shouldn't be despairing. I should be grateful. And I should be thankful. And I talk myself out of despair. The gospel is the good news that Jesus came and lived and suffered and died and rose again in the place of sinners like you and me so that sinners like you and me could be reconciled to God. That means that, therefore, 
I have been loved and accepted by God in Christ Jesus. As a Christian, I can say that. That I have been loved and accepted by God in Jesus Christ. And now, therefore, out of gratitude, I obey. I'm going to try to do well today. Not take His grace for granted. But I'm not going to try and do well today so that Jesus will love me. That's wicked and demonic. And that's what Paul hates and calls those who preach it dogs. Don't tell people that, Paul is saying. The Christian has been loved and accepted by God. Therefore, they obey. And it is not, it is not, I obey. Therefore, I am loved and accepted by God. That's the opposite of the gospel. If you are here this morning and you'd like to talk about this. If you are here this morning and you want to talk about your standing before Christ. I'll be up here at the end of service and I'll wait to speak with you. Don't leave this morning without talking to another Christian about your standing right now today before Christ and whether or not you're putting your confidence in Him or in something else. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, You know that we don't have any reason to put confidence in anything other than You, but we do. And You know that we struggle with this and You know that You know those of us who struggle more than others. We thank You, God, for the examples you've given us in Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus and then men and women in this church who worship you, who glory in your son and who don't put confidence in the flesh. Pray that you'd help us to look to these examples that you've provided for us and look to the truth of your word and help us to battle this tendency to secure our joy and happiness and who we are and what we've done and how well we've performed in our Christian life. Help us in that struggle, God, to fight for joy that comes in who you are and what you have done for us through your son, Christ, that we would respond then in gratitude and thankfulness and God, help us also to look out for teaching that's against your word, whether it's in a book or in a sermon or in this church or another church or on the radio or subtly in a song. God, help us to be what you've called us to be on guard, looking out for teaching that contradicts your great gospel. Today, may you be praised and glorified and honored in the rest of what we do this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.